Part two of the indiscreet letter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The indiscreet letter by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. Part two. With sudden tardy contrition, the salesman's amused eyes wandered to the open book on the youngish girl's lap. "'I sure talk too much,' he muttered. "'I guess maybe you'd like half a chance to read your story.' The expression on the youngish girl's face was a curious mixture of humor and seriousness. "'There's no special object in reading,' she said, "'when you can hear a bright man talk.' As unappreciatingly as a duck might shake champagne from its back, the traveling salesman shrugged the compliment from his shoulders. "'Oh, I'm bright enough,' he grumbled, "'but I ain't refined.' Slowly to the tips of his ears mounted a dark red flush of real mortification. "'Now there's some traveling men,' he mourned, "'who are as slick and fine as any college president you ever saw.' But me, I'd look coarse sipping warm milk out of a gold-lined spoon. I haven't had any education, and I'm fat, besides. Almost plaintively he turned and stared for a second from the young electrician's embarrassed grin to the youngish girl's more subtle smile. Why, I'm nearly fifty years old, he said, and since I was fifteen the only learning I ever got was what I picked up in trains talking to whoever sits nearest to me. Sometimes it's hens I learn about. Sometimes it's national politics. Once a young Canuck farmer sitting up all night with me coming down from St. John learned me all about the French Revolution. And now and then high school kids will give me a point or two in astronomy. And in this very seat I'm sitting in now, I guess, a red-kerchiefed dago woman who worked on a pansy farm just outside of Boston used to ride in town with me every night for a month, and she coached me quite a bit on Dago Talk, and I paid her five dollars for that. "'Oh, dear me,' said the youngish girl with unmistakable sincerity. "'I'm afraid you haven't learned anything at all from me.' "'Oh, yes, I have, too,' cried the traveling salesman, his whole round face lighting up suddenly with real pleasure." i've learned about an entirely new kind of lady to go home and tell my wife about and i'll bet you a hundred dollars that you're a good deal more of a lady than you'd even be willing to tell us there ain't any provincial don't you dare speak to me this is the first time i ever was on a train air about you i'll bet you've travelled a lot all around the world froze your eyes on icebergs and scorched em some on tropics yes laughed the youngish girl and I'll bet you've met the Governor-General at least once in your life. Yes, said the girl, still laughing. He dined at my house with me a week ago yesterday. And I'll bet you most of anything, said the traveling salesman shrewdly, that you're haughtier than haughty with folks of your own kind. But with people like us, me and the electrician, or the soldier's widow from the South Africa who does your washing, or the Eskimo man at the circus, you're as simple as a kitten. All your own kind of folks are nothing but grown-up people to you, and you treat em like grown-ups, all right. A hundred cents to the dollar, but all our kind of folks are playmates to you, and you take us as easy and pleasant as you'd slide down on the floor and play with any other kind of a kid. Oh, you can tackle the other proposition, all right, dances and balls and general old lace glories, 
but it ain't fine loafers sitting around in parlors talking about the weather that's going to hold you very long when all the time your heart's up and over the back fence with the kids who are playing the games and oh say he broke off abruptly would you think it awfully impertinent of me if i asked you how you do your hair like that "'Cause surer than smoke, after I get home and supper is over and the dishes are washed, and I've just got to sleep, that little wife of mine will wake me up and say, "'Oh, just one thing more. How did that lady in the train do her hair?' With her chin lifting suddenly in a burst of softly uproarious delight, the youngish girl turned her head halfway round and raised her narrow black-gloved hands to push a tortoise-shell pin into place. "'Why, it's perfectly simple,' she explained. "'It's just three puffs and two curls and then a twist.' "'And then a twist,' quizzed the traveling salesman earnestly, "'jotting down the memorandum very carefully "'on the shining black surface of his sample case. "'Oh, I hope I ain't been too familiar,' he added, with sudden contriteness. "'Maybe I ought to have introduced myself first. "'My name's Clifford. I'm a drummer for sales and sales.' Maine and the Maritime Provinces, that's my route. Boston's the home office. Ever been in Halifax? He quizzed a trifle proudly. Do an awful big business in Halifax. Happen to know the Emporium store? The London, Liverpool, and Halifax Emporium? The youngish girl bit her lip for a second before she answered. Then, very quietly, yes, she said, I know the Emporium slightly. That is, I own the block that the emporium is in gee said the travelling salesman oh gee now i know i talk too much in nervously apologetic acquiescence the young electrician reached up a lean clever mechanical hand and smooched one more streak of black across his forehead in a desperate effort to reduce his tousled yellow hair to the particular smoothness that befitted the presence of a lady who owned a business block in any city whatsoever my father owned a store in malden once he stammered out just a trifle wistfully but it burnt down and there wasn't any insurance we always were a powerfully unlucky family nothing much ever came our way even as he spoke a toddling youngster from an overcrowded seat at the front end of the car came adventuring along the aisle after the swaying clutching manner of tired fretted children on trains hesitating a moment she stared up utterly unsmilingly into the salesman's beaming face ignored the youngish girl's inviting hand and with a sudden little chuckling sigh of contentment climbed up clumsily into the empty place beside the young electrician rummaged bustlingly around with its hands and feet for an instant in a petulant effort to make a comfortable nest for itself and then snuggled down at last lolling halfway across the young electrician's perfectly strange knees and drowsed off to sleep with all the delicious friendly unconcerned sangfroid of a tired puppy almost unconsciously the young electrician reached out and unfastened the choky collar of the heavy sweltering little overcoat yet not a glance from his face had either lured or caressed the strange child for a single second just for a moment then his smiling eyes reassured the jaded jabbering french-canadian mother who turned round with a craning neck from the front of the car she's all right here let her alone he signaled gesticulatingly from child to mother. Then, turning to the traveling salesman, he mused reminiscently, "'Talking's all right, but...
But where in creation do you get the time to think?' "'Got any kids?' he asked abruptly. "'No,' said the traveling salesman. "'My wife, I guess, is kid enough for me.' Around the young electrician's eyes the whimsical smile wrinkles deepened with amazing vividness. "'Huh,' he said. "'I've got six. "'Gee,' chuckled the salesman. "'Boys?' The young electrician's eyebrows lifted in astonishment. "'Sure they're boys,' he said. "'Why, of course.' the travelling salesman looked out far away through the window and whistled a long breathy whistle how in the deuce are you ever going to take care of em he asked then his face sobered suddenly there was only two of us fellows at home just daniel and me and even so there weren't ever quite enough of anything to go all the way round for just an instant the youngish girl gazed a bit sceptically at the travelling salesman's general rotund air of prosperity "'You don't look exactly like a man who's never had enough,' she said smilingly. "'Food?' said the traveling salesman. "'Oh, shucks! It wasn't food I was thinking of. It was education. Oh, "'Of course,' he added conscientiously. "'Of course, when the crops weren't either too heavy or too blooming light, "'Pa usually managed some way or other to get Daniel and me to school. "'And schooling was just nuts to me, and not a single nut so hard or so green that I wouldn't have chawed and bitten my way clear into. But Daniel, Daniel somehow couldn't seem to see just how to enter a mushy Bartlett pear without a knife or a fork in some other person's fingers. He was all right, you know, but he just couldn't seem to find his own way alone into anything. So, when the time came, the grin on the traveling salesman's mouth grew just a little bit wry at one corner. And so, when the time came, it was an awful nice, sweet-smelling June night, I remember. And I'd come home early. I walked into the kitchen as nice as pie, where Pa was sitting dozing in the cat's rocking chair in his gray stocking feet, and I threw down before him my full year's school report. It was pink, I remember, which was supposed to be the rosy color of success in our school, and I says, Pa, there's my report, and Pa, I says, as bold and stuck up as a brass weathercock on a new church. Pa, teacher says that one of your boys has got to go to college. And I was grinning all the while, I remember, worse than any chessy cat. And Pa, he took my report in both his horny old hands, and he spelt it all out real careful and slow and respectful, like as though it had been a lace valentine, and good boy, he says, and bully boy, and so teacher says that one of my boys has got to go to college, one of my boys. Well, which one? Go fetch me Daniel's report. So I went and fetched him Daniel's report. It was gray, I remember, the supposed color of failure in our school, and I stood with the grin still half frozen on my face, while Pa spelt out the dingy record of poor Daniel's year. And then, oh, gory, says Pa, run away and glow on to bed. I've got to think. But first, he says, all suddenly, cautious and thrifty, how much does it cost to go to college? And just about as delicate and casual as a missionary hinting for a new chapel, I, I blurted out loud as a bull, well, if I go upstate to our own college and get a chance to work for part of my board, it'll cost me just $255 a year, or maybe, maybe, I stammered, maybe if I'm extra careful, only $245.50, I say, for four years, that's only $982, I finished triumphantly. God, says Pa, nothing at all except just God. 
When I came down to breakfast the next morning, he was still sitting there in the cat's rocking chair, with his face as gray as his socks and all the rest of him blue jeans. And my pink school report, I remember, had slipped down under the glove, under the stove, and the tortoise shell cat was lashing it with her tail. But Daniel's report, gray as his face, was still clutched up in Pa's horny old hand. For just a second, we eyed each other sort of dumb-like, and then for the first time, I tell you, I seen tears in his eyes. Johnny, he says, it's Daniel that'll have to go to college. Bright men, he says, don't need no education. Even after thirty years, a traveling salesman's hand shook slightly with the memory, and his joggled mind drove him with unwanted carelessness to pin price mark after price mark in the same soft, flimsy mesh of pink lail. But the grin on his face did not altogether falter. I'd had pains before in my stomach, he acknowledged good-naturedly, but that morning with Pa was the first time in my life that I ever had any pains in my plans. So we mortgaged the house and the cow barn and the maple sugar trees, he continued more and more cheerfully, and Daniel finished his schooling in the Lord's own time and went to college. With another sudden loud guffaw of mirth, all the color came flushing back again into his heavy face. "'Well, Daniel has sure needed all the education he could get,' he affirmed heartily. "'He's a Methodist minister now somewhere down in Georgia, and educated way up to the top notch. He don't make no more than six hundred and fifty a year. Six fifty! Oh, glory! Why, Daniel's piazza on his new house cost him one seventy-five, and his wife's last hospital bill was two fifty, and just one dentist alone gaffed him sixty-five dollars for straightening his oldest girl's teeth.' "'Not sixty-five, gasped the young electrician in acute dismay. "'Why, two of my kids have got to have it done. "'Oh, come now, you're joshing.' "'I'm not either joshing,' cried the traveling salesman. "'Sure it was sixty-five dollars. "'Here's the receipted bill for it right here in my pocket.' "'Brusquely he reached out and snatched the paper back again. "'Oh, no, I beg your pardon. "'That's the receipt for the piazza. "'What? It isn't.' For the hospital bill, then, oh, hang, well, never mind, it was sixty-five dollars. I tell you, I've got it somewhere. Oh, you paid for them all, did you? quizzed the youngish girl before she had time to think. No, indeed, lied the traveling salesman loyally. But six-fifty a year, what can a family man do with that? Why, I earned that much before I was twenty-one. Why, there wasn't a moment after I quit school and went to work that I wasn't earning real money. From the first night I stood on a street corner with a gasoline torch, hawking raisin cedars, up to last night when I got an $800 raise in my salary, there ain't been a single moment in my life when I couldn't have sold you my boots, and if you'd buncoed my boots away from me, I'd have sold you my stockings, and if you'd buncoed my stockings away from me, I'd have rented you the privilege of jumping on my bare toes, and I ain't never missed a meal yet, though once in my life I was 48 hours late for one. Oh, I'm bright enough, he mourned, but I tell you I ain't refined. With a sudden stopping of the train, the little child in the young electrician's lap woke fretfully. Then as the bumpy car switched laboriously into a siding and the engine went puffing off alone on some non-committal errand of its own, the young electrician rose and stretched himself and peered out of the window into the acres and acres of snow, and bent down suddenly and swung the child to his shoulder, then, sauntering down the aisle to the door, jumped off into the snow and started to explore the edge of a little snow-smothered pond, 
which a score of red-mittened children were trying frantically to clear with huge yellow brooms. Out from the crowd of loafers that hung about the station, a lean yellow hound came nosing aimlessly forward, and then suddenly, with much fawning and many capers, annexed itself to the young electrician's heels like a dog that has just rediscovered its long-lost master. Halfway up the car, the French-Canadian mother and her brood of children crowded their faces close to the window and thought they were watching the snow. And suddenly the car seemed very empty. The youngish girl thought it was her book that had grown so astonishingly devoid of interest. Only the traveling salesman seemed to know just exactly what was the matter. Craning his neck till his ears reddened, he surveyed and resurveyed the car, complaining, "'What's become of all the folks?' A little nervously the youngish girl began to laugh. "'Nobody has gone,' she said, "'except the young electrician.' With a grunt of disbelief the traveling salesman edged over to the window and peered out through the deepening frost on the pane. Inquisitively the youngish girl followed his gaze. Already across the cold, white, monotonous snow-smothered landscape the pale afternoon light was beginning to wane and against the lowering red and purple streaks of the wintry sunset the young electrician's figure, with a little huddling pack on its shoulder, was silhouetted vaguely with an almost startling mysticism, like the figure of an unearthly traveller starting forth upon an unearthly journey into an unearthly west. "'Ain't he the nice boy?' exclaimed the travelling salesman with almost passionate vehemence. "'Why, I'm sure I don't know,' said the youngish girl a trifle coldly. "'Why, it would take me quite a long time to decide just how nice he was. "'But,' with a quick softening of her voice, "'but he certainly makes one think of nice things. "'Blue mountains and green forests and brown pine needles "'and a long hard trail, shoulder to shoulder, "'with a chance to warm one's heart at last at a hearth fire bigger than a sunset.' Altogether unconsciously, her small hands went gripping out to the edge of her seat, as though just a grip on plush could hold her imagination back from soaring into a miraculous, unfamiliar world, where women did not idle all day long on carpets, waiting for men who came on pavements. "'Oh, my God!' she cried out with sudden passion. "'I wish I could have lived just one day when the world was new. I wish—' I wish I could have reaped just one single solitary big emotion before the world had caught it and appraised it and taxed it and licensed it and staled it. Oh-ho, said the traveling salesman with a little sharp indrawing of his breath. Oh, so that's what the young electrician makes you think of, is it? For just an instant the traveling salesman thought that the youngish girl was going to strike him. "'I wasn't thinking of the young electrician at all,' she asserted angrily. "'I was thinking of something altogether different.' "'Yes, that's just it,' murmured the travelling salesman placidly. "'Something altogether different. "'Every time I look at him it's the darndest thing. "'Every time I look at him I forget all about him. "'My head begins to wag and my foot begins to tap, "'and I find myself trying to hum him as though he was the words of a tune I used to know.' When the travelling salesman looked round again, there were tears in the youngish girl's eyes, and an instant after that her shoulders went plunging forward till her forehead rested on the back of the travelling salesman's seat. But it was not until the young electrician had come striding back 
to his seat and wrapped himself up in the fold of a big newspaper, and not until the train had started on again and had ground out another noisy mile or so, that the traveling salesman spoke again, and this time it was just a little bit surreptitiously. "'What you crying for?' he asked with incredible gentleness. "'I don't know, I'm sure,' confessed the younger girl snuffingly. "'I guess I must be tired.' "'Hm,' said the traveling salesman." After a moment or two he heard the sharp little click of a watch. "'Oh, dear me,' fretted the youngish girl, somewhat smothered voice. "'I didn't realize we were almost two hours late. Why, it will be dark, won't it, when we get into Boston?' "'Yes, sure it will be dark,' said the traveling salesman. After another moment the youngish girl raised her forehead just the merest trifle from the back of the traveling salesman's seat, so that her voice sounded distinctly more definite and cheerful.' "'I've never been to Boston before,' she drawled a little casually. "'What?' exclaimed the traveling salesman. "'Been all around the world and never been to Boston. "'Oh, I see,' he added hurriedly. "'You're afraid your friends won't meet you.' Out of the youngish girl's erstwhile disconsolate mouth a most surprising laugh issued. "'No, I'm afraid they will meet me,' she said dryly. Just as a soldier's foot turns from his heel alone, so the traveling salesman's whole face seemed to swing out suddenly from his chin, till his surprised eyes stared direct into the girl's surprised eyes. "'My heavens!' he said. "'You don't mean that you've been writing an indiscreet letter?' "'Yes, I'm afraid that I have,' said the youngish girl quite blandly. She sat up very straight now, narrowed her eyes just a trifle stubbornly toward the traveling salesman's very visible astonishment. And what's more, she continued, clicking at her watch-case again, and what's more, I'm on my way now to meet the consequences of said indiscreet letter. Alone? gasped the traveling salesman. The twinkle in the youngish girl's eyes brightened perceptibly, but the firmness did not falter from her mouth. "'Are people apt to go in crowds to meet consequences?' she asked, perfectly pleasantly. "'Oh, come now,' said the traveling salesman's most persuasive voice. "'You don't want to go and get mixed up in any sensational nonsense, and have your picture stuck in the Sunday paper, do you?' The youngish girl's manner stiffened a little. "'Do I look like a person who gets mixed up in sensational nonsense?' she demanded rather sternly. "'No?' acknowledged the traveling salesman conscientiously no but then there's never any telling what you calm quiet-looking still waters sort of people will go ahead and do once you get started anxiously he took out his watch and then began hurriedly to pack his samples back into his case it's only twenty-five minutes more he argued earnestly oh i say now don't you go off and do anything foolish my wife will be down at the station to meet me you'd like my wife you'd like her fine oh i say now you come home with us for sunday and think things over a bit as delightedly as when the travelling salesman had asked her how she fixed her hair the youngish girl's hectic nervousness broke into genuine laughter Yes, she teased. I can see just how pleased your wife would be to have you bring home a perfectly strange lady for Sunday. My wife is only a kid, said the traveling salesman gravely, but she likes what I like, all right, and she'd give you the shrewdest, eagerest little helping hand that you ever got in your life, if you'd only give her a chance to help you out with whatever your trouble is. But I haven't any trouble, 
persisted the youngish girl with brisk cheerfulness. Why, I haven't any trouble at all. Why, I don't know but what I just as soon tell you all about it. Maybe I really ought to tell somebody about it. Maybe, anyway, it's a good deal easier to tell a stranger than a friend. Maybe it would really do me good to hear how it sounds out loud. You see, I've never done anything but whisper it just to myself before. Do you remember the wreck on the Canadian Pacific Road last year? Do you? Well, I was in it. Gee, said the traveling salesman, it was up on just the edge of Canada, wasn't it? And three of the passenger coaches went off the track, and the sleeper went clear over the bridge and fell into an awful gully, and caught fire besides? Yes, said the youngish girl, I was in the sleeper. Even without seeming to look at her at all, the traveling salesman could see quite distinctly that the youngish girl's knees were fairly knocking together, and that the flesh around her mouth was suddenly gray and drawn like an old person's. But the little persistent desire to laugh off everything still flickered about the corners of her lips. Yes, she said, I was in the sleeper, and the two people right in front of me were killed, and it took almost three hours, I think, before they got any of us out, and while I was lying there in the darkness and mess and everything, I cried and cried and cried. It wasn't nice of me, I know, nor brave, nor anything, but I couldn't seem to help it, underneath all that pile of broken seats and racks and beams and things. And pretty soon a man's voice, just a voice, no face or anything, you know, but just a voice from somewhere, quite near me, spoke right out and said, What in creation are you crying so about? Are you awfully hurt? And I said, though I didn't mean to say it at all, but it came right out, No, I don't think I'm hurt, but I don't like having all these seats and windows piled on top of me. And I began crying all over again. But no one else is crying, reproached the voice, and there's a perfectly good reason why not, I said. They're all dead. Oh, said the voice, and then I began to cry harder than ever, and principally this time, I think, I cried because the horrid old red plush cushion smelt so stale and dusty, jammed against my nose. And then after a long time the voice spoke again, and it said, If I'll sing you a little song, will you stop crying? And I said, No, I don't think I could. And after a long time the voice spoke again, and it said, Well, if I tell you a story, will you stop crying? And I considered it a long time, and finally I said, Well, if you'll tell me a perfectly true story, a story that's never, never been told to anyone before, I'll try and stop. So the voice gave a funny little laugh, almost like a woman's hysterics, and I stopped crying right off short, and the voice said, just a little bit mockingly, but the only perfectly true story that I know, the only story that's never, never been told to anybody before, is the story of my life. Very well, then, I said, tell me that. Of course, I was planning to live to be very old and learn a little about a great many things, but as long as apparently I'm not going to live to even reach my twenty-ninth birthday tomorrow, you don't know how unutterably would comfort me to think that at least I knew everything about some one thing. And then the voice choked again, just a little bit, and said, Well, here goes, then. Once upon a time, but first, can you move your right hand? Turn it just a little bit more this way, there. Cuddle it down. Now, you see, I've made a little home for it in mine. Ouch, don't press down too hard. I think my wrist is broken. All ready, then? You won't cry another cry. Promise. All right, then. Here goes. Once upon a time. 
"'Never mind about the story,' said the youngish girl tersely. It began about the first thing in all his life that he remembered seeing, something funny about a grandmother's brown wig hung over the edge of a white piazza railing, and he told me his name and address and all about his people and all about his business and what banks his money was in and something about some land down in the panhandle and all the bad things that he'd ever done in his life and all the good things that he wished there'd been more of and all the things that no one would dream of telling you if he ever, ever expected to see daylight again. Things so intimate, things so... But it wasn't, of course, about his story that I wanted to tell you. It was about the home, as he called it, that his broken hand made for my frightened one. I don't know how to express it. I can't exactly think, even, of any words to explain it. Why, I've been all over the world, I tell you, and fairly loafed and lolled in every conceivable sort of ease and luxury. But the soul of me, the wild, restless, breathless, discontented soul of me, never sat down before in all its life, I say, until my frightened hand cuddled into his broken one. I tell you, I don't pretend to explain it. I don't pretend to account for it. All I know is that smothering there under all that horrible wreckage and everything, the instant my hand went home to his, the most absolute sense of serenity and contentment went over me. Did you ever see your young white horses straying through a white birch wood in the springtime? Well, it felt the way that looks. Did you ever hear an alto voice singing in the candlelight? Well, it felt the way that sounds. The last vision you would like to glut your eyes on before blindness smote you. The last sound you would like to glut your ears on before deafness dulled you. The last touch before intangibility. Something final, complete, supreme, ineffably satisfying. And then people came along and rescued us, and I was sick in the hospital for several weeks. And then after that I went to Persia. I know it sounds silly, but it seemed to me as though just the smell of Persia would be able to drive away even the memory of red plush dust and scorching woodwork. And there was a man on the steamer whom I used to know at home, a man who's almost always wanted to marry me, and there was a man who joined our party at Tehran, who liked me a little, and the land was like silk and silver and attar of roses. But all the time I couldn't seem to think about anything except how perfectly awful it was that a stranger like me should be running around loose in the world, carrying all the big scary secrets of a man who didn't even know where I was. And then it came to me all of a sudden, one rather worrisome day, that no woman who knew as much about a man as I did was exactly a stranger to him, and then twice as suddenly to great grown-up, fool-blooded, money-staled, book-tamed me, it swept over me like a cyclone that I should never be able to decide anything more in all my life, not the width of a tinsel ribbon, not the goal of a journey, not the worth of a lover, until I'd seen the face that belonged to the voice in the railroad wreck. And I sat down and wrote the man a letter, I had his name and address, you know, and there in a rather maddening moonlight night on the Caspian Sea, all the horrors and terrors of that other Canadian night came back to me and swamped completely all the arid timidity and sleek conventionality that women like me are hide-bound with all their lives, and I wrote him, that unknown, unvisualized, unimagined man, the utterly free, utterly frank, utterly honest sort of letter than any brave soul would write any other brave soul every day of the world if there wasn't any flesh it wasn't a love letter it wasn't even a sentimental letter 
Never mind what I told him. Never mind anything except that there in that tropical night, on a moonlit sea, I asked him to meet me here in Boston, eight months afterward on the same Boston-bound Canadian train, on this, the anniversary of our other tragic meeting. "'And you think he'll be at the station?' gasped the traveling salesman. The youngish girl's answer was astonishingly tranquil. "'I don't know, I'm sure,' she said. "'That part of it isn't my business. All I know is that I wrote the letter and mailed it. It's fate's move next.' "'But maybe he never got the letter.' protested the traveling salesman, buckling frantically at the straps of his sample case. "'Very likely,' the youngish girl answered calmly. "'And if you never got it, then fate has surely settled everything perfectly definitely for me that way. The only trouble with that would be,' she added whimsically, "'that an unanswered letter is always pretty much like an unhooked hook. Any kind of a gap is apt to be awkward.' and the hook that doesn't catch in its own intended tissue is mighty apt to tear later at something you didn't want torn. "'I don't know anything about that,' persisted the traveling salesman, brushing nervously at the cinders on his hat. "'All I say is maybe he's married.' "'Well, that's all right,' smiled the youngish girl. "'Then fate would have settled it all for me perfectly satisfactorily that way. I wouldn't mind at all his not being at a station.' and I wouldn't mind at all his being married, and I wouldn't mind at all his turning out to be very, very old. None of those things, you see, would interfere in the slightest with the memory of the voice or the chivalry of the broken hand. The only thing I'd mind, I tell you, would be to think that he really and truly was the man who was made for me, and I missed finding it out. Oh, of course, I've worried myself sick these past few months, thinking of the audacity of what I've done, I've got such a sore thought, as you call it, that I'm almost ready to scream if anybody mentions the word indiscreet in my presence. And yet, and yet, after all, it isn't as though I were reaching out into the darkness after an indefinite object. What I'm reaching out for is a light, so that I can tell exactly just what object is there. And anyway, she quoted a little waveringly, he either fears his fate too much, or his deserts are small who dares not put it to the touch to gain or lose at all. "'Ain't you scared just a little bit?' probed the travelling salesman. All around them the people began bustling suddenly with their coats and bags. With a gesture of impatience the youngish girl jumped up and started to fasten her furs. The eyes that turned to answer the travelling salesman's question were brimming wet with tears. "'Yes, I'm scared to death,' she smiled incongruously. Almost authoritatively, the salesman reached out his empty hand for her traveling bag. "'What you going to do if he ain't there?' he asked. The girl's eyebrows lifted. "'Why, just what I'm going to do if he is there,' she answered quite definitely. "'I'm going right back to Montreal, tonight. There's a train out again, I think, at eight-thirty. Even late as we are, that will give me an hour and a half at the station.' "'Gee,' said the traveling salesman, "'and you've traveled five days just to see what a man looks like for an hour and a half?' "'I'd have traveled twice five days,' she whispered, "'just to see what he looked like for a second and a half.' "'But how in thunder are you going to recognize him?' fussed the traveling salesman, "'and how in thunder is he going to recognize you?' "'Maybe I, I won't recognize him,' acknowledged the youngish girl, "'and likelier than not he won't recognize me. "'But don't you see?' Can't you understand? 
but all the audacity of it all the worry of it is absolutely nothing compared to the one little chance in ten thousand that we will recognize each other well anyway said the travelling salesman stubbornly i'm going to walk out slow behind you and see you through this thing all right oh no you're not exclaimed the youngish girl oh no you're not can't you see that if he's there i wouldn't mind you so much but if he doesn't come can't you understand that maybe i just as soon you didn't know about it oh said the travelling salesman a little impatiently he turned and routed the young electrician out of his sprawling nap don't you know boston when you see it he cried a trifle testily for an instant the young electrician's sleepy eyes stared dully into the girl's excited face. Then he stumbled up a bit awkwardly and reached out for all his coil-boxes and insulators. "'Good night to you. Much obliged to you,' he nodded amiably. A moment later he and the travelling salesman were forging their way ahead through the crowded aisle. Like the transient, impersonal, altogether mysterious stimulant of a strain of martial music, the young electrician vanished into space. But just at the edge of the car steps, the traveling salesman dallied a second to wait for the youngish girl. Say, he said, say, can I tell my wife what you've told me? Yes, nodded the youngish girl soberly. And say, said the traveling salesman, say, I don't exactly like to go off this way and never know at all how it all came out. Casually his eyes fell on the big lynx muff in the youngish girl's hands. Say, he said, if I promise honest Injun to go way off to the other end of the station, couldn't you just lift your muff up high once if everything comes out the way you want it? Yes, whispered the youngish girl almost inaudibly. Then the traveling salesman went hurrying on to join the young electrician, and the youngish girl lagged along on the rear edge of the crowd like a bashful child dragging on the skirts of its mother. Out of the groups of impatient people that flanked the track, she saw a dozen little pecking reunions where someone dashed wildly into the long, narrow stream of travelers and yanked out his special friend or relative like a good-natured bird of prey. She saw a tired, worn, patient-looking woman step forward with four noisy little boys and then stand dully waiting while the young electrician gathered his riotous offspring to his breast. She saw the traveling salesman green like a bashful schoolboy, just as a red-clothed girl came running to him and bore him off triumphantly toward the street. And then suddenly out of the blur and the dust and the dizziness and the half-blinding glare of lights, the figure of a man loomed up directly and indomitably across the youngish girl's path, a man standing bareheaded and faintly smiling as one who welcomes a much-revered guest. A man, tall, stalwart, sober-eyed, with a touch of gray at his temples, a man whom many women would be proud to have waiting for her at the end of any journey, and right there, before all that hurrying, scurrying, self-centered, unseeing crowd, he reached out his hands to her and gathered her frightened fingers close into his. "'You've kept me waiting a long time,' he reproached her. Yes, she stammered. Yes, yes, the train was two hours late. It wasn't the hours that I was thinking about, said the man very quietly. It was the year. And then, just as suddenly, the youngish girl felt a tug at her coat, and turning round quickly, found herself staring with dazed eyes into the eager, childish face of the traveling salesman's red-cloaked wife. 
Not thirty feet away from her, the traveling salesman's shameless, stolid looking back seemed to be blocking up the main exit to the street. "'Oh, are you the lady from British Columbia?' queried the excited little voice. Perplexity, amusement, yet a divine sort of marital confidence were in the question. "'Yes, yeah, surely I am,' said the youngish girl softly. Across the little wife's face a great rushing, flushing wave of tenderness blocked out for a second all trace of the cruel, slim scar that marred the perfect contour of one cheek. "'Oh, I don't know at all what it's all about,' laughed the little wife. "'But my husband asked me to come back and kiss you.'" End of Part 2 End of the Indiscreet Letter